0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate Scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to Episode 2 of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Hey, today we're going to look at Genesis 1, verse 2. And we're going to see that although the text contains numerous dark and ominous elements— It ultimately points us to a hope that our God is different than the gods of other religions. Our sponsor for this episode is Logos Bible Software. I'm going to refer even to an article that I used to prepare this episode. If you want to get a discount, 15% discount on Logos Bible Software, you can use my coupon code jmyers6 at logos.com. There's a link in the show notes. If you can't remember that, just click on the link. It'll take you over to Logos, and it will show you the coupon code there as well. Now, let's get on with the episode. So last time, we looked at Genesis 1-1, and we learned in that verse that Moses was not writing to defend creationism, especially not writing to us. He was writing to his original readers, the Israelite people who had come out of bondage in Egypt. And they were wondering what this God was like. Moses was asking them to worship this God, follow this God, do what he would asked, lead them, you know, take them into the desert. And uh, frankly, they wanted to know if they could trust God or not. I mean, the Israelites couldn't be sure he could be trusted, right? They had He had left them in for 400 years in Egypt in bondage and slavery and let their children suffer under all this slavery. And they're saying, why should we follow this God? Why should we obey him? And so Moses, he sat down and he began to tell them this story. And he, he started off in Genesis 1-1 by stating that God is the creator of all things. And we saw in Genesis 1-1 that this emphasized the power of God. But again, uh, the problem was with the slavery in the bondage. So even though God is powerful, I mean, that's no big deal. Everybody believed their gods were powerful. So the, the issue was, well, even if God is powerful, why did he let his people, the Israelites, suffer in Egypt for so long? What was wrong with this God? Or maybe what was wrong with the people of Israel that he had treated his people this way? Maybe he wasn't as powerful as they thought. Maybe they had sinned so grievously. Maybe he wasn't very loving. Okay, what was the deal with God? And so, in Genesis 1-2, the verse we're going to look at today, Moses, he sets out to address this question. But, in my opinion, he does so in the strangest of ways. So, Genesis 1-2, it says this, Now the earth was without form, and void, and darkness, Covered the face of the deep. That's how the verse begins. And we don't pick it up in English, but I guarantee you, his Hebrew audience, the Jewish audience, Israelites, spoke Hebrew, they would have been startled by what Moses said in this verse. Take the words formless and void. In Hebrew, they're tohu vabohu. My Logos Bible software uh, word study on these verses says that these, ver- these words could be translated as waste and void, or or even as chaos and desolation. And so, this raises questions right away about the character of this Creator, this powerful God that you and I were introduced to in Genesis 1-1, along with the Israelites. Genesis 1-1 didn't really say anything about God other than that He was powerful, right? But now, the very next thing we learn about this God that created all things is well, it doesn't really say much about him, except that this 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 thing he created is a wasteland. It's an emptiness. It's a place filled with chaos. Uh, that doesn't sound so promising. And maybe this begins to explain, this is what the Israelites are thinking, maybe this begins to explain why God let them suffer in slavery for so long. I mean, if he created the world as a wasteland, as a void, as a... Place of chaos and desolation, then uh, it's no surprise that their life is also desolate, empty, and chaotic. Apparently, God likes it that way, even if we don't. But maybe not. And I'll get back to that maybe not in just a minute. Let's go on to the next words in the verse. It says uh, next, after the formless and void, without form and void, that there was darkness. Okay, this is uh, this is strike three against God. We have chaos, we have desolation, now we have creation filled with darkness. Darkness then, as now, is universally, almost universally associated with death and evil. So, uh, look, frankly, things are not looking so good for this God that Moses is introducing to the Israelites to follow, worship, and obey. If... Again, put yourself in their shoes, in their sandals. If you're an Israelite, you're thinking that maybe God is not leading you to freedom and deliverance now that he's starting to introduce you to this God he wants you to worship. Maybe this God is only leading you to more death, suffering, and slavery, to chaos, desolation, and darkness. That sort of explains why later, as we'll see in the text, why some of the Israelites respond the way they do. When they're at Mount Sinai, they start complaining and say, yeah, "We had it pretty good back in back in Egypt, even though we were slaves." Okay, some of that is because of this introduction to the God that they are about to worship. Maybe you don't want to hear more about this God. <laughs> That's what they're thinking. All right, Moses, stop, stop. But he does go on. Okay, and guess what? The next phrase, not very promising either. This darkness. That fills creation. That was strike three. We got a nail in the coffin. Now it's on the face of the deep. Again, the Hebrew here is al Tehom. to home. There's the shocking word for the Hebrew Israelite listening to Moses introduce them to God. It's a to home. It's a an ancient, mysterious and menacing word to ancient minds to home was an evil word. In fact, it still carries this idea today. If you want if you want to be disturbed, if you want to see some disturbing images, just do a Google image search for the word to home. T E H O M. Go to images.google.com, type in to home, T E H O M, and be prepared to be disturbed. Okay it, it, uh, people are and, and this isn't just something we invented today, this imagery. It goes back thousands and thousands of years, all the way to the time of the Israelites, this idea of what to home is. Now, literally, again, Logos Bible software, literally the word means a great quantity of water, uh, the commotion of waves maybe, or uh, of a gulf and of, of abyss, the sound of waves crashing together. Um, it, it, it could even be translated and it is at times as the word "ocean. Uh, Now, I like the ocean. My wife loves the ocean. She could live, just the sound of the ocean to us is calming and soothing. But not so to the normal Hebrew person living back in the days of Moses, coming out of Egypt. Again, uh, you can't come to the Bible with your own mindset. You have to try to enter the mindset of the average person who was hearing these words, to whom they were written, to whom they were spoken. For many people back then, the the ocean, uh, the deep, the abyss. It was the source of primordial chaos. It was the dwelling place of monsters. It was something to be feared. Nothing good ever came from the sea. It was uh, disturbing. It was evil. It was threatening. It was ominous. And this is how Moses begins to introduce God to the people of Israel. Oh, you've just come out of uh, bondage in Egypt. Well, let me introduce you to God. He created everything. He's super powerful. And you want to know what kind of power he has? Chaos, formless, darkness, and to home. So what are we to make of this? Why does Moses begin his story in such a strange way, a dark way? Well, as you can imagine, it's sort of as we said in the last episode— Theologians have debated this, Christians have debated this over thousands of years, even before Christianity is around, the Jewish people debated this. Probably the most popular approach has been to soften the words and sort of ignore the implications of the terms. Uh, This attempt to to soften Genesis 1-2 is found in in most English Bibles— uh, you know, if, if you're if you're sort of saying, well, I've read Genesis 1-2 and I've never heard those sorts of things, yeah, it's probably because you're reading this in English, and our English translators soften the ideas, soften the words to make God look better than what the Hebrew text actually, how the Hebrew text actually presents him, okay? Um, the idea you get from these translations is that in Genesis uh, 1-1 and 1-2, God sort of created a big mass of shapeless material, okay. Especially one, two. He just created this big shapeless material, this 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 formless lump of Plato. and then in Genesis one, three, and following, he starts to form it and fill it. All right, and and you know there is some literary evidence for this. And we'll, again, we will talk about this in future episodes. This how, how formless and void becomes formed and filled. We'll talk about that. But uh, look, I, I don't think that's doing justice to the text. That, that element is there, but it, it's not revealing the, um, the, the sort of the scary, the, the dark elements of Genesis 1-2. And so, the, obviously, that's not the only view. It is a view, not the only view. Uh, many scholars, including many Jewish scholars, ancient uh, ideas on Genesis 1-2, believe that Genesis 1-1 is not really a description of God doing any creating— but is more of a title, sort of a, well, it's a title to to what's about to happen. And then Genesis 1-2 sort of begins the the, the, the stuff God used to create, and Genesis 1-3 is when he actually begins the work. Of course in this in this case, the question is, all right, so if Genesis one one is not him creating stuff, and Genesis one two is the material God used to create, and Genesis one three is where he began to create, well, then, where'd the stuff come from? Because we never read about him creating anything. Genesis one one is just a title for the chapter then where'd all the matter come from? Where'd the earth and the water come from? Again, this debate is starting sort of like the last episode. I let myself get way off into the weeds on these peripheral subjects. I'm doing that again. Let me try to get back here. Some people believe that Moses was implying that matter was eternal, or that Moses didn't know where matter came from, left the question open, or that people some some people today say, well, this is proving the Big Bang, you know, all these sorts of things. Look, I believe that Genesis one one is sort of a title and an introduction, but I also believe, and you're, it's fine. This is a valid view that Genesis one one also explains where all matter came from. Matter is not eternal; only God is eternal. God did create everything. Okay, and uh, uh, look, Genesis one one. We can. It's not. It's not what Moses had in mind, but but it's okay. We we. Where else could matter come from? Okay. The uh, Big Bang is illogical, okay, getting off into apologetical issues again. We, we can't get sidetracked. Some have proposed uh, this thing called the gap theory. I wanted to say a quick word about that. They, they note that in passages like Isaiah 45.18 and in Jeremiah 4.23, uh, those prophets state that God did not create the world tohu vabohu, those words that we read in Genesis 1-2. Okay, and so so they say, see, God didn't create the world this way, so somehow it became this way. And so the theory is that God created everything, and it was good. Genesis 1-1, even though I didn't say it was good, but God created everything, and then somehow there was thousands, millions, maybe even billions of years in between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, and somehow the chaos and the formlessness and the void and the destruction and all of that happened. Maybe that was where the satanic... Rebellion occurred and and there was war in the cosmos and all of that angelic rebellion, sinister chaos then we read about in Genesis one two as a result of this this cosmic this heavenly war okay that's the that's the gap theory, and lots of people believe that you'll probably find. Uh, references to that, like the Schofield Study Bible and things like that. But I don't, personally, I don't think that's what Moses was teaching either. Remember, as I said in Genesis 1-1, although we can come to the text with the questions that we have, really what we need to do is come to the texts and look for the questions that the original Hebrew audience might have had, okay? So uh, I don't think they would have had any of these sorts of questions. So let's return to the text with this in mind and try to understand what they would have been hearing when Moses was saying this, okay? What you need to understand, what we need to understand, is that at that time, there was a popular story in the region, Uh, we call it the Enuma Elish today. And it was a creation account from Babylon, and it was ancient, much older than this Genesis creation account. And it heavily influenced many of the other creation stories, uh, like the ones we find in Egypt and Canaan and Mesopotamia. What happens is in the Enuma Elish, we are introduced to the god Marduk and a female sea dragon named Tiamat. She, uh, the sea dragon, dwelt in the deep. And the story begins uh, with a dark, turbulent, chaotic, watery abyss. Sound familiar? And this dark, turbulent, chaotic abyss was ruled by Tiamat. Marduk, he wages war against Tiamat, this is what the Enuma Elish says, and he succeeds in killing her. Then he divides her body into two parts, And out of one part, he makes the waters above and separates them from the waters below. Then, Marduk fashions earth below and places it upon the waters below. And the story of the Enuma Elish goes on, but I imagine, again, some of that sounds very, very familiar to what we read about in Genesis chapter 1. It's nearly exactly the way Moses begins his creation account as well. But, of course, instead of Marduk, we have Elohim. And instead of the Babylonian name, Tiamat, we have the equivalent Hebrew name, Tehom. Lots of the resources I looked up in Logos Bible Software will bring this out. You can probably look at almost any good commentary as well. I'm going to include, I found an article online. It's an old article from 1910 where they were aware of this and were already discussing it You know, over 100 years ago, but it's available for free online. So I will include a link to that in the show notes, which you can go look it up and read some of that yourself. It's old, so it's not as up-to-date as some of the stuff on Logos Bible Software, but it's still good introductory to, uh, you can get an introduction to some of this. But the point is that some critics look at this and say, see, Moses, this is not divine revelation from God. Moses stole it. This is plagiarism. He he simply took the Babylonian creation myth, these Egyptian creation myths. He changed the names on them. He changed a few of the details. This is not, this is what they say, this is not a story about how God created the world this is a story about how Marduk defeated Tiamat in a cosmic battle. And Moses—he's not a good enough storyteller to come up with his own, so he just steals theirs and then changes the names. And okay, but that, thats a, that's a common criticism of Genesis one and two. And what do we just say about that? Because it's pretty obvious. All of the details line up pretty clearly. Yeah, Moses changes a few details, but I mean, they are the stories are very, very similar. You know what we can say? We can say they're right. We can agree. We can say to these Bible critics, yes, Moses did borrow the story from the Enuma Elish, from these other creation myths. Yes, he plagiarized the story. Yes, he changed some of the details. But that is exactly the point. The name changes and the changes in the details are what make all the difference. And here's why. This brings us to the point of Genesis 1-2, and in fact, the entire opening chapters of Genesis. Moses is writing a polemic against these other myths. He's writing in a way to disprove them, to refute them, and, and sort of in a way to redeem them. He's writing to show where these myths went wrong and also, surprisingly, where these myths got it right. So does this mean Genesis 1 and 2 or the Enuma Elish are basically correct about how creation occurred? Well, maybe, but maybe not. Most likely not. The point of these chapters is that it's not to tell us how the world came to be. That's not the point. The point is to introduce us to what God is like, to tell the Israelite people what Yahweh is like. And as the creation accounts unfolds in the following chapters, we see how different Yahweh is from Marduk and how differently he creates and forms and fills than what is recorded about Marduk in the Enuma Elish. In fact, to introduce us uh, to the differences between Yahweh and Marduk, Moses writes at the end of Genesis 1-2, we see this at the very, right away, he's introduced sort of this dark and ominous picture of creation, and then he immediately shows us how Yahweh is different than Marduk. At the end of Genesis 1-2, we read about the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. The word hovering means to move gently. So, very much unlike This cosmic battle between Marduk and Tiamat, where there's blood and bodies cut in half, okay? There is no indication in Genesis 1 2 of any war. There is not the least bit of violence. In other words, what Moses is telling the Israelites is that when God, in his power, sets out to act, he does so gently, he's hovering. Over the surface of the waters, and he he does that. That Genesis one two even mentions that his spirit, his ruach, is hovering over the surface of the waters. the The word ruach in, indicates it's like a light wind or or a gentle breeze. Even it's not a raging storm. Okay, there's no violent gale, lightning, thunder crashes, nothing like that. It's a still small fluttering. So a still small voice, like Elijah mentions in First Kings nineteen. It's a a, a gentle breeze in leaves, even, like uh, Jesus mentions in John chapter 3. Or maybe, uh, I think this is probably where Paul gets this idea of Theopneustos, the breath of God, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. So here's what we're seeing. When God sets out to act, it's very different than the violent and the bloody battle waged by Marduk against Tiamat in the Enuma Elish. And we'll see this idea repeated over and over and over in the following chapters. How different Yahweh is than all the other gods that the Israelites were familiar with. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, there's something wrong with creation. But God sets about it, goes about it, comes at it completely differently than anything that they're used to. Anything that they're familiar with. So the Israelites are starting to get this glimpse of what kind of God Yahweh is. He's powerful, yes. He's creator of all, for sure. There's chaos, darkness, emptiness, okay, to home, the the, the abyss. How it got there, the text doesn't say. One thing we do know, though, when God acts, when God steps out to change the chaos, to bring light to the darkness, it's with a gentle touch, a quiet word. A spirit hovering, fluttering over the surface of the crashing waves. That sounds nice, right? So the question now, though, is this. How can such a gentle fluttering over a raging storm bring peace, restoration, healing, and order? I mean, look at your life. Find an area of your life that is filled with chaos. Is a gentle butterfly... You know, a fluttering of a bird wing, is that going to fix anything? No, you need a big act, right? That's the way we think. Life doesn't work this way. To overcome violence and chaos and desolation, you need to act boldly. You need to use force. You need to fight fire with fire. You need to engage in war. You need to cut your enemy in half, just like Marduk did against Tiamat. How's a gentle breeze fluttering over the surface of a crashing storm? going to do anything. Well, the following verses are going to show exactly how. Again, we're going to have to save those for future episodes. Here's some closing thoughts, though, from Genesis 1-2. Moses has purposefully used ancient Babylonian creation myths into his Hebrew audience knowing that they, they had almost certainly heard of these stories. The Egyptians had similar stories as well, even if they hadn't heard this particular one from Babylon. They had, the Egyptians had similar stories. Now, why does Moses do this? I'm convinced he uses these stories not to teach the people about how the world was made, but to teach them what Yahweh was like, and more importantly, how Yahweh was different from the gods, that the, the Egyptian gods and the Babylonian gods that the Israelites were familiar with. What this means is that from the very beginning, Scripture was about redeeming God from religion. And how did he do this? How did God do this? Through Moses. He does it by copying, emulating, even plagiarizing the myths and ideas of these other religions. Why? For the purpose of subverting them and even redeeming them, to show how the hopes and dreams and stories of other religions and other people are ultimately and perfectly only fulfilled in God. We're going to see that pattern. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to see that pattern repeated over and over and over throughout the entire Old Testament. It's a pattern which is perfected with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But again, that's jumping way ahead. For now, uh, here's what we see from the way Moses begins his account. Just as the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the chaotic tahome, the deep So also, the Spirit of God hovers over your life. It's a gentle, fluttering way, seeking to bring change to the chaos that you're experiencing, bringing beauty and order into the darkness, into the storm. The slavery uh, that the Israelites had suffered under, it was their chaos, their desolation. God was work in that to bring something good out of it, just like he's at work in your life. So, from this, we can see how God works in our lives. And especially, we can see how God works and interacts with the beliefs and stories of other religions. I don't think God rejects or condemns these other religions completely, their myths and their stories. But instead, what we see here is that the Spirit of God has been fluttering over these other religions to bring a revelation of himself to them. Yeah, these religions. I'm not saying all religions are good, or all religions are the same. I'm not, do not misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that about, what I'm saying is that God uses religion to draw people to himself. He doesn't discard and reject all the stories and ideas and other religions as evil or wrongs just because they're from other religions. No, what God does is he pulls the good from the religion. Look, the religion is a, it's a, sign of people's longings and dreams and hopes and desires, and and these are good things. And so he pulls these good things out of these other religions uh, that are found in their stories and their myths. And then he says, yes, those are good, and those are fulfilled in me. Okay? So what does this mean? Among other things, it means that the Spirit of God has been whispering to the hearts and minds of people all over the world and throughout time to reveal to them the truth about God. No, they didn't get everything right. They didn't even get a lot right, just as you and I don't get everything right. But they wrote down some of what they heard. They told the stories that were on their hearts. And we can learn what God is doing in the world by watching the way he gently works and hovers and blows over the upheavals in culture and religion and politics. These chaotic signs that we see, they're they're not signs, the chaos in our world and all the troubles, they're not signs that God has abandoned the world. They're indications, though, that he's about to do something new, that his spirit is fluttering over the surface of the storm. And something new, something beautiful is going to rise from the ashes. This new and surprising, beautiful story continues to unfold in Genesis 1-3, which we will begin to look at next time. Hey, thanks for listening to this second episode of the One Verse Podcast. Just check my timer again. I'm almost half an hour. I seem to be following a pattern here. That might be the pattern I continue. I was hoping for something shorter. Maybe I just need to talk less. <laughs> hey, listen, why don't you let me know? If you could go leave a rating review on iTunes. Let me know if you like the half hour. I'll keep it up. If you prefer something shorter... Uh, let me know sort of what you would like, and I will shoot for that as well. A rating review on uh, iTunes is also going to help other people find this podcast, and that way these ideas can spread more. And listen, if you have questions, comments, you can leave those as well. You can go to com slash Genesis 1-2. That way you can leave a comment there on the on the blog about this uh, this podcast episode. If you have any questions, any concerns about what I'm saying, that'd be the place to leave it. You can join the conversation there. See you in the next episode when we look at Genesis 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 3.